Hey, welcome to the Circle of Salt, the podcast where we use our snark to protect the occult community from itself and others. Circle of Salt is brought to you by Felix Warren, aka Dot Ass, and Rune Emerson, aka Andrew Chumley's occult masterpiece, The Ass Oasia. I can't believe you named me that. (laughs) (laughs) It's an arcane masterpiece. I'm going to carry that forever. Just so you know, Circle of Salt's website is at circleofsaltpodcast.tumblr.com. That's where you can go for updates about the podcast and to ask us questions. If you like Circle of Salt, it would be great if you would review us on iTunes or your other podcast listening venue of choice, and tell your friends and neighbors about this cool podcast about awesome witch shit. If you don't like us, then don't do anything at all and say nothing. Only silence will keep us from manifesting demons into your home. Really, really, for real. So it's time for our first installment, affectionately called Hekas Hekas Este Bullshit. Today's dish of salt is primarily served by me, although you will be seeing some sprinklings or hearing them from Felix as well, and is entitled Merchandise Missed Opportunities. All right, so, okay, so I have a, I have a bit of beef to go with this salt. I get really sick and tired of the flack that, um, that I, okay, so to start out, let me just kind of like tell you all a little bit about Rune's background. I work in a metaphysical shop. Uh, that is my primary area of, um, like output for people and outreach. Um, I do my card readings and such out of a local metaphysical shop. And I've been doing that. I've been working out of various metaphysical shops since 2004, actually probably 2003. Anyway. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty savvy on the kind of stuff that, that these various occult shops and uh, metaphysical outlets have to deal with the kind of questions you get, the kind of people that you get, the kind of garbage that, you know, you see in the catalogs, all that kind of stuff. But I have a bit of a problem with metaphysical shops in general because of this. I've developed a very extensive and particular set of prejudices whenever I go into a new metaphysical place. I don't like shops that don't sell anything. Like, and this is such an easy trap to fall into. Shop owners, you guys, um... You have a responsibility. You set your little shingle outside that says, please purchase witchy objects here, or whatever it is that you're selling. You need to stick to that. If your name is of particular interest and of a particular theme, a lot of the stuff that you're selling should probably be fulfilling of that promise. I mean, if you have a store that is entitled uh, Mystic memoirs and books and you don't have any books or journals or anything in your store dude what are you doing consequently if your store is a witchcraft store and i don't mean a new age store or a paraphernalia store or a curio store i mean a fucking witchcraft store and you don't have the things that witches need for their everyday purposes you are not only wasting everyone's time and wasting opportunities for yourself, but you're also pissing me the fuck off. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I have walked into a store that is like entitled something like 
Hecate's Cauldron or, you know, uh, Hand of Glory or, you know, uh, some sort of, like, uh, broomsticks and, and candles or some shit like that. It's entitled something that is very clearly meant to appeal to the witchy community. And all they have are Hindu statuary. I'm like, dude, do you even know what what Hindi faith considers witchcraft to be about? Like, seriously, that was the wrong choice. <laughs> so it's very irritating to me anytime I walk into a place and can't find something I can buy. This is something that, um, I don't know if this is current and common like in, in modern day, because we have adults who have been alive um, like less time than Spongebob has. Uh, and there are people, like, the world is different maybe for them. But I know that people from my era, and I'm in my 30s, uh, when we walk into a metaphysical store, we are going there so we can buy something. We're not going there to waste time. We want to hang out, sure, but that's not wasting time to us. We want to walk out of there with probably $50, $60 worth of merchandise that we can't find anywhere else. So if we walk into a place and we don't find magic books that we've never seen anywhere else before because we don't have those catalogs, if we walk into a place and we don't find tarot decks that we thought had gone out of print long ago, or tarot decks that just recently came out in print and we didn't even know they were out yet, or, oh my god, that just is so freaking cool. If we don't find, oh, well, these are the stones you're going to need, or these are the herbs you're going to need, or these are the whatever the thing that the store is supposed to specialize in, we feel kind of screwed over. We feel like false advertising. It's a missed opportunity, and it's a big mistake for those of you guys out there running one of these one of these um, businesses. And as someone who has seriously participated in these businesses for quite a long time now, um, over a decade for certain, um, I'm going to tell you this is a bad way to do business. But that's the thing. Um, when you're metaphysical or a cult, a lot of times when you're involved in that kind of community and you open your own store, a lot of times the whole reason you're doing it is so you can buy stuff for yourself. I've noticed that a lot of people make their little stores or their businesses or whatever because they find one particular thing or three particular things or 12 particular things to be of particular interest to them. And so they think everybody should be practicing the way that they do or at least should have the opportunity to. So they only stock the things that they think are important. Or maybe they don't practice at all, and this is just their way of making connections in the community. One way or the other, I'm not going to argue with anybody's belief system. I'm just going to be like, okay, do what you do. But I got to tell you, it gets even worse when you're a geekomancer. Geeks like to buy shit. It's pretty much all we do. Like, we eat Cheetos, and we play video games, and we argue about our favorite shipping or our favorite fandom theories, and then we buy merchandise. That's what we do. Um, we engage and indulge in our fandoms in every possible way we can because we love those fandoms. And when a company produces something that is popular and has been around for a long time producing popular things, I am looking at you, Square Enix, when they produce these sorts of things and they don't follow it up with good, valuable merchandise, quality merchandise, and then they have the fucking nerve to come down with a cease and desist on people who are actually providing that merchandise, let's just say that my cursed fingers start itching.
There are a few things that I have been wanting for a really long time that people just don't seem to be providing anymore or never really did. And that, it bugs me. Like, I want a really nice official replica of Majora's Mask from Legend of Zelda. And Nintendo has more than enough capacity and is aware of more than enough interest to create something like this. But if you've ever been to a convention for um, anime or video games or anything to that effect where you might run into Legend of Zelda merchandise, it's all fan-made and almost all of it is incredibly expensive for some stuff that is medium quality at the best, which is really annoying. Like, I have a plush Majora's Mask that I got from somebody who was willing to fucking put it together, and I paid top dollar for low-quality merchandise. It's not ugly. It's not terrible. It's, it's just not, like, I shouldn't have had to pay the price I paid for it. And I don't even begrudge the person I bought it from because I know that they aren't a factory. They had to do all that stuff handmade. So, there you are. Square Enix, on the other hand, like various companies like Nintendo and so on and so forth, seem to be under the mistaken impression that they get to tease their little cool things and then never ever provide any of us the ability to access replicas in real life. And I'm not talking Cloud's sword here. I'm talking the Astrologian deck of 60 from Final Fantasy 14, which was literally spoken about in great detail in their most recent release of Encyclopedia Eorzea. And don't fucking pretend that you guys can't release playing cards and shit. You've released I don't know how many decks. I have run into them all and purchased most of them faithfully. You are starting to make me tired. So seriously, I'm so upset about this because do you have any idea how hard it is to find a six-suit deck? It's impossible. I have tried to find places that will print them, and unless I'm willing to do all of the artwork myself and then have it rep replicated, I can't even get a basic fake-ass replica done up. It's so much struggle. When you add in the fact that there are supposed to be 12 major arcana that go into this, instead of the two jokers that nearly every deck comes with, I just want to fucking chew people's faces off. I'm like, you even provided a spread or two to be used out of this book, but you don't print the deck? What the hell's the matter with you? This class has been out for over a year, two years. I don't, you know, I don't even know anymore. Ah, so that makes me angry. Um, but that's not the only thing. I've been really kind of spitting bullets about this ever since I started getting into Geekomancy, and like. It's been a, a thing, like the Clow book. Um, back when they released the Cardcaptor Sakura replica cards, the Clow book box that they brought them in, it's just basically a box. It's not a book. How hard would it be for you to create a journal that had a hollow point in the center for your freaking cards? How hard? I mean, it can't be that hard because I've actually taken a, like a, a, a straight razor and cut out like pages in a journal and put a deck of cards inside. Why? Because I watched Cardcaptor Sakura. And I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. And I was a child. Well, a teen. But whatever. I was terrible at it. I made a big old choppy mess. But it worked. Why can't you guys do it? I know you have access to this shit. Come on. So anyway, this is just really infuriating to me. How about you, Felix? Do you have any opinions on the subject? <laughs>
So, back in the day, this is not <clears throat> so much of a problem now because um, uh, of a demographic shift, but in the Sailor Moon world, um, all of the merchandise that came out for Sailor Moon in the mid-90s was really dumb. Um, especially if it came out in the U.S. Like, the ja Japan had the good stuff. The U.S. got whatever Bandai thought they could license to some American toy company who wanted to, like, just rename everything uh, to dumb things. Um, <laughs> and, and, and they'd blunt the edges because they were imagining that the people who were buying these things were going to be, like, five years old or receiving these things would be five years old. It's like, no. Like... Okay, I understand in Japan that this stuff is, like, technically the demographic is for kids, but still, it's like, you know, around 10-year-olds is, like, kind of the bottom line, and goes up to 13. Mm. Um, especially for Sailor Moon, that's a, a story about 14-year-old girls. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., that's going to be, like, something that teenagers and college kids consume, because right. that's how it works. But they don't... There's all this demographic bullshit and all. So, you know, the moon wand that I've got from that era is like, uh, it's not very crescent moon shaped. It's more like a banana. Uh, <laughs> the banana moon wand. It's very blunted, so I can't stab myself in the eye with it. Oh, it's, um, oh, it's been made. Oh, that's cute. If I want a legit, like, exactly the shape that it should be moon wand i can get that now official it used to be you'd have to like get a prop but now since they're doing the 20th actually 25th anniversary of sailor moon um everybody who who like grew up with it has now grown up into an adult and right. now japan in specific is like hey all of these you know, we're presuming you know young girls they're presuming it's young girls but you know they're, like, they're a all lie. That's a lie. They're, They're are like, not oh. presuming that. They are pretending they presume that so they can get away with arguing it to people who don't understand anything about geeks. In, in Japan specifically, they are presuming that, and and they're actually enforcing it in some cases. Um, and they have some, they have their own ideas about gender and Japanese society, especially mainstream society. But now they're assuming that everyone who wants Sailor Moon stuff is going to be like you know. A a, a, a woman in their 30s, which means that she can handle things with sharp edges without killing herself. Right? So now you can get a replica Sailor Moon wand. It's only going to cost you like 90 bucks. See, okay, so they came out with this really freaking cool cloud card set in, um, like, in Japan. It's strictly in Japan. You have to order it from Japan if you want it. Um. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> It's really cool. It's a book, and it comes with cards, and you can scan things with the book, and it, there's a wand that you can buy separately that can scan the cards because there's a fucking microchip in them, and they read out prophetic little things from the cards or whatever, and I'm over here dying because we finally have the technology to do this shit, and I'm like, that would have been really cool when I was a kid, but we didn't have it back then. But I want it. Everything is fucking ninety dollars. Are you kidding me? Can't. Sometimes you're lucky if it's ninety dollars, <laughs> right, dude? I've seen some replicas that are like, like, like the minimum is like one hundred and thirty-five. They're more like three hundred, four hundred dollars. I can't even handle it. I'm just like, I want to murder everything. So, in Japan, specifically coming from Japan, there's a couple of problems here. Um, one is that. Um, 
they consider the fan stuff to be a very niche genre, and so they're going to price things like tremendously to be able to uh, make return off of what they consider like a, a small amount of uh, appeal. And the reason they're considering it small is because they always make their products specifically to be sold in Japan and assume only a Japanese audience. And so they're like you know CDs would be printed, and there'd be at most fifty thousand copies. And so if you wanted an actual original CD, especially like in the 90s, it'd be very hard to source one, and it cost a lot. Like, it was 60 bucks for a CD sometimes. Um, oh. And because it was like, there's so few of them, because they made them, like, you know, for the island of Japan as opposed to, like, the entire world. But, you know, nowadays, I don't think that's as much of an excuse anymore. Like, they have to be aware how many people internationally buy this stuff. Um, and so, you know, they're making it only for... A very specific small audience. Um, they basically play it safe a lot. Um, and when it comes to like you know the age demographic, they'll they'll only assume that adults are buying this in special circumstances, such as like you know the twenty fifth anniversary Sailor Moon stuff. See, um, I, uh, yeah, and so and then you gotta wait like twenty five years after something comes out for something that's right. usually, like good to buy. Okay, do you know what? Like, I found one that was really freaking cool someone did something really good as like I love it when these um, these companies understand by observing what their people want and what their people say in forums and actually read the feedback and so they they follow through yeah and they actually or, believe us right or they surprise us with something that we didn't even realize we wanted and oh my god yes we do want it so white wolf which is essentially like a relatively inert company right now, which is very sad to me. Like, I'm glad that they're finally getting back on their feet with the Onyx Path um, assistance and everything like that. But they're reprinting all of their books now through Onyx Path. And right. um, they kickstarted two different, uh, two different games from their, from their World of Darkness period. They redid Mage the Ascension and they redid Changeling the Dreaming. And both of them got kickstarted as 20th anniversary editions, so they're M20 and, T and C20. But their deluxe edition books look like grimoires. And I remember when those kickstarters were coming out. I have a perma boner because I have recently <laughs> acquired the Mage 20 deluxe leather book that is, seriously, it's a fucking tome. I'm not kidding. If you guys don't have this, it's so gorgeous. And I, it's, I just can't. I, I, I can't. It's so awesome. And I cannot wait for the day when we sit down as a family with a bunch of our friends and do, even if it's just a fucking one-shot, a magical game themed around Mage the Ascension because I have all the paraphernalia. I have the Mage Tarot deck. I have the Mage Grimoire now. We have Mage... Uh, themed dice. We're there's all sorts of possibilities, and we're gonna make this shit rock. It's gonna be awesome. I'm so excited. I treat this stuff as seriously as I do my religion, and most geeks do. And it bugs me. It infuriates me that people don't cater to their clients enough that their clients can be satisfied by the stuff that they're making. It's so annoying to me. Um, and just as a last little bit here, because we really need to move on. Um, for those of you who are listening, if you know anybody who is capable of creating a Kefka Palazzo plushie, you need to contact me. 
You need to contact me because I will buy it from you. I will commission it. I will spend top dollar for that shit. I actually support artists, so please contact me. I've already spoken to one person. I'm shopping around a little bit, but my birthday comes up in September, and I guarantee you that will be on the fucking gift list. So seriously, if you can make one, or if you know someone who makes one, you contact me immediately and you get me in touch with them because I need, I need a Kefka plushie or he might start giving me nightmares again. Okay, so we should probably move into our next segment, yes? Yeah, I think so. I, I will right. say that um, the I, I want to paint one bright side on onto this whole murky situation regarding merchandise. Very and you've nice. already kind of indicated it. Um, crowdfunding is basically making this not happen so much anymore. That's like, true. Crowdfunding, like the more companies that embrace crowdfunding, the more they're basically saying, oh, the audience will directly pay for the thing that they are saying they want because they're giving us, they're pledging us money right now. <laughs> you know, and like that's, that's it. That's the solution. And like, you know, you, if you crowdfund something, then you've already verified whether someone's going to buy it before you make it because they just bought it. Exactly. There's, there you go. Okay. And, and several Japanese companies have like done Kickstarters to right? produce, you know, Although um, not Little not Witch Academia, many. Little Witch Academia, both of its movies were produced for, from crowdfunding. That's, that's true. And you and I were supposed to watch that, which may show up in another Geekomancy episode later, because as you may have noticed, we like to do this particular series. It of shall episodes. happen. So we'll just, we're going to watch it and we're going to do a thing where we talk about the magic there and all sorts of stuff. But we're actually going to move from there into our discourse segment for this particular episode, a.k.a. always entitled uh, Echo Chamber Azarak, where we talk about things that are totally true and totally interesting and totally pertinent to the salt we've already dished. So um, today's discourse is actually based around our, th this is our third Geekomancy episode, and we're going to be focusing on Geekomancy um, and how to learn from it. And we're primarily focusing on anime and JRPGs because we're fucking weebs and that's what we do. But we're going to talk about Geekomancy and how you can use it to actually learn magic. Because that's kind of been what we've been aiming at with all of these Geekomancy episodes. And that will probably be what we do from here on. It's something that we seem to be able to provide that other people don't have. So, you know, listen to our podcast so you can get good stuff. All right, so... Um, Geekomancy is a practice of magic. I have already said this. Felix has already said this. People have already said this. Geekomancy is a practice of magic. It's a way to do magic. It's, like all forms of magical practice, based on the functionality of magic in our objective universe. Magic actually works in our objective universe. That's why Geekomancy works. We don't fake it until it happens. We actually utilize real principles. A lot of people who get into Geekomancy get into Geekomancy because it's easier for them to think of as something fun to do, but not because they think of it as a functional magical practice. And that is something that I want to deal with today, and I'm pretty sure that Felix has some opinions about this as well, both whimsical and serious. Um, if, you'd aren't, if you aren't pursuing Geekomancy as a legitimate magical practice with sacrifices required for the wisdom and power that you're gaining, you are making a serious mistake, honey. And that is something that we are going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about what we have learned about real magic based on 
what geekomancy we have studied and the the fictional universes that we have used to infuse our paradigms of practice. Um, so my primary focus is going to be on Final Fantasy, but it kind of Final Fantasy has a tendency to bleed into both Eastern and Western cultures of magic and concepts of occultism and so on and so forth. Um, like it borrowed heavily from D and D when it was first originated, but it it diverged almost immediately afterwards into something completely different. Um, and it ties into a lot of Japanese concepts, which I actually kind of love. I learned to love Japanese Shinto because of my experiences with Japanese anime and Japanese RPGs and things like that, which really began with Final Fantasy for me, specifically Final Fantasy VI, which is my absolute favorite game in the entire fucking world, perhaps with the single exception of Bayonetta. Anyway, which more on that later. Um, so I kind of want to start by talking about something that I've discovered by working with that. Um, so here's the thing. One of the staples of Final Fantasy is the magic system. The magic system doesn't really change much throughout the entirety of the series. Um, occasionally you'll get a few variations and a few like weird shit. You're like, well, where did that even come from? Like Final Fantasy VIII's draw system, which I'll get back to in a minute. Um, well, later, probably later at the end of the episode. But... Um, the magic system is essentially built around Western ceremonial magic and Western occultism. The idea that there are white spells and black spells. The idea of white magic and black magic. Which, those of you who have studied anything to do with occultism about white and black magic as a paradigm of explanation, recognize that the, um, the concept is white magic is for kindly things. It's for good magic. It's for nice magic. Whatever. Um, whereas black magic is dark, bad, evil, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of played to that trope in Final Fantasy when it first came out. Like, the sprite for the white mage is this person in a white and red robe with their face clearly ap apparent and as uh, pleasant as they could possibly make the sprite look, whereas the black mage was pointy-hatted and had a hidden face with glowy gold eyes. Which, so it's meant to kind of go, black magic is spooky, white magic is nice. Um, and possibly a little clerical, actually. Which is a very D&D &D concept. You have your clerics and your, and your sorcerers. Wizards, you know, that kind of thing. And they kind of went like that. But they've, they've developed it further. And of course, because Japanese um, designers, um, game designers, when they're designing their games, are going to draw from the influences that they're most familiar with. So it's really funny because now, 15 iterations plus into the game, it's become very similar to Taoism. There's become a very strong influence of Eastern thought into the very Western occultism and Western D&D &D fantasy uh, influenced magic system that originated from the beginning of Final Fantasy. Um, while studying all of this, I, I didn't care at age, like, 12, when I first found Final Fantasy, I was just like, fuck, I want to just start casting spells. Uh, this tells me there are white spells and black spells, and the black spells all seem to be, like, elemental spells, like fire and lightning and 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 ice and, and poison and stuff. Okay, I want to do that stuff. How do I make that work? And I was studying rune magic at the time. Um, I was studying Wicca. 
and they have a lot to say about elementalism and so on and so forth in all those different cultures. So I was like, ooh, maybe there's a key here or there. Um, obviously that's not quite how that turned out. Um, the white magic kind of thing was all like, oh, it's like a healing spell, cure, and, um, and Asuna, which they called something else in the game before. I don't even, I, I don't think they actually had, I know they did, they had Remedy, that's what it was. And anyways, so they had all these different, like, different spells that you could cast that were meant to break bad things off of you and protect you and heal you and stuff like that, which I didn't care so much about because I was an angry kid. Um, so, but as I've started learning how the Final Fantasy genre views magic now, I started to recognize some basic common trends. Everything is centered around crystals, and crystals are crystallized ether. So those of you who know what ether, aether, ether is, um, those of you who have studied anything from Greek thought, that's actually what they're talking about. It is the quintessential um, proto-energy, proto-matter substance that exists purely in the metaphysical that becomes physical substance when it enters into this world. It becomes physical substance, but it also becomes spiritual substance, ideas, memories, people's spirits, souls, all that kind of stuff is ether. So are bodies, you know, metal, stone, all that kind of stuff. But the, the purer the resonance with a particular principle um, the ether is before it becomes physical, the more useful it is for magic. So like you have elemental crystals or crystals that are associated with particular magical beings that you can use for summonings and stuff like that, which we'll get into later. Um, ether is everything. And finally, in 14, they have a large enough universe that they actually explain the magic system. Ether is responsible for quite literally everything that exists. It is the substance of everything. The, uh, the elemental harmonies and frequencies of it determine what kind of forces are moving through it. And then you have the basic separation of, of thaumaturgy and conjury, which are kind of the polarization of magic when you're doing it as a basic practice. You have white magic, which comes from conjury, and conjury is basically chi movement. It's basically Taoist sorcery. It's basically Reiki. It's I'm moving energy from this place to that place to provide a mending spell upon the blah, blah, blah. It's super easy to do. It exists because the life stream makes everything. That's what they call the big current of Aether out there. Um, the Aether already has the components inside of it to provide life-giving force to literally everything. Rocks have life in them. The wind has life in it. The trees have life in it. The animals around you have life in it. Everything has life in it. And Conjury draws a little touch of it from everything to help do a healing spell or something. You can also kindle something's innate healing abilities as well. So you have curing, like literally just instantaneous regeneration of, of wounds uh, or hit points, or regeneration as in regen, like a slow heal over time. Then you have black magic. Black magic, thaumaturgy, is cursing the shit out of things by calling upon Aether from the underworld. And that works because you have dark, evil, mean emotions inside of you that make you a deep well of emo fucker. And that allows you to channel your emo fuckery through an elemental, uh, like a, a, a magically viable medium 
like a crystal or something that's stuck inside a scepter and pull that rage up through you and that darkness up through you and use it to call upon the wicked evil curses in the underworld and fling them at people. Fire. Curse somebody with fire. Not just regular fire. Fire from the underworld. Like, this is the underworld flame that burns you forever and causes you to suffer and eventually will kill you. Because, and it works because literally everything is going to die. Everything is already touching the underworld. So, like, I'm, a, I'm making the underworld basically claim you through the portal of hellfire. It's kind of fun, actually. So, this is actually a viable method of cursing things. This is actually a, a very viable method of healing things, uh, the white magic thing. And incidentally, it is the same magical system that was borrowed when Slayers was being designed, because it's coming from the same root. This replication of Western mystical thought and Western fantasy roleplay. But Slayers took it a different direction. They started they said black magic is basically calling upon demons and hitting somebody with the eyelash or toenail of a demon. So Not quite. Well, you know what I mean, and you can further explain some of that. Because, right. But that's so, kind of how they do it, whereas white magic is essentially Taoist sorcery. It's essentially chi moving. Yeah. So, go. You're so first. I'm going to talk about Slayer's magic and what I learned from it. I started this around, like, 1999 or so, whenever I started watching Slayer's, and I really wanted to, like, start working more with stuff. Um, Slayer's... I didn't want to really do spells from it, mostly because I didn't really see the utility in casting Fireball and Dragon Slave on the environment around me. Um, You're so nice. I just really wanted to immolate people. Well, I mean, I did, but, like, other than that, like, you know, where was the utility? It also just wasn't really within my interest at the time, so I didn't really go into a lot of using the magic systems in Slayers instead. Um, Slayers works a lot with spirits, um, because of, primarily because of the Mizoku. Um, so the, the Mizoku, um, that's the demons and Slayers, uh, in the dub, and they may have actually corrected this in, like, more recent releases, but they translated that to monsters because for a while they thought that they were going to be broadcasting Slayers on Fox Kids, so they didn't want to be saying demons and, uh, because they were afraid that might be implying they were teaching kids to summon Satan. Although, to be fair, Lisa Ortiz, when she was doing the English dub, like, when she would say monsters, you could tell she was capitalizing that shit. It's, like, really ambiguous in a lot of the episodes, though, and it's just kind of sloppy. Like, a lot of their translation it is. for the dub, and sometimes for the sub, is very sloppy, but that's, like, a separate grouse. So, once you get a hold of what it is they're actually talking about, Mazoku, like, Slayers is not the only um, anime that uses that term, because it basically just means, like, evil ones. Like, the race of evil or the race of, like, dark ones. It's, ones. it's a... Yes. It's, like, it, it, it's a term for demons in Japanese. Um, they basically have a spirit hierarchy, and I was already looking into... Um, actually, no. Slayers is what made me walk down this path. Uh, <laughs> the path to demons. Let's Fox Kids was right. <laughs> um... <laughs> Like, that's the worst part, is that I'm always like, yeah, it's, like, silly that they'd, like, think that. And then I'm like, yeah, so Slayers taught me how to work with demons. Oh, whoops. Um, so Slayers' as demons have an actual hierarchy, and that hierarchy 
taught me a bit about what to expect with spirit work and also kind of why they work like they do. Like, when you look into demons especially, they usually have a hierarchy that says, you know, this one's a president, this one's an earl, and this one's a marquee. Mm-hmm. And you know partially that the reason why they have that is simply being, you know, it's it's speaking to the era that, that you know, particular grimoire would have been written. But, um it does have some importance within actual spirit work. Like, if you do have a spirit that's working for another spirit, then there are certain protocols that come into play. In Slayers, you've got the Lord of Nightmares, which is basically, like, she is the embodiment of the Sea of Chaos, which is the void that everything comes from. Like, everything, not just the Slayers world, but, like, all the worlds. Um, So, like, she's, like, that's literally a concept from like western occultism and also from like you know eastern thought as well but a lot of what slayers is based on is uh western occultism and i'll talk about that later um so when the slayers world was being created um basically everything came from her and you've got like her two kids um one is the dragon god seafeed um and he's like the good god um because here like the dragons are basically like angels um i thought it was really cool that like (laughs) the good foot i thought it was really cool that in slayers like dragons are like the dragon race the sentient ones they're like the good guys because that's like i didn't see that so so much in a lot of other media at the time um and then you have uh shepernigdo ruby eye like the the demon king and in the very beginning of primordial creation like they fight and then um Seafeed manages to um, break Shepernigdo into like seven pieces, mm-hmm. um, and those like kind of fall to the to the world. And then Seafeed creates like four underlings, like different dragon kings, to oversee the world. Um, at the time, Ruby I also created like five underlings um, to oversee his thing. So you've got like the five demon lords descended from Rubii, and you've also got seven shards of Rubii throughout the world. And you know, anytime you find a shard of Rubii, they're going to be more powerful than those demon underlings because he created them, so they're going to listen to him. Right. And that's basically how it, it works. Even like if you're doing any kind of spirit work yourself and you create a servitor, like I hear a lot about like, oh, well, whenever you create a servitor, you have to be you put in these stipulations that it won't like, you know, go against you. And you have to, you know, make sure not to ever give it enough energy that it can overthrow you. And you have to like, you know, do all these pro- like, you know, preventions and like be really paranoid. And it's like you made the thing. And it's, it's made of you going to listen to you (laughs) right like that's like it's logic and and in slayers i mean they even address the fact that you cannot really go against your boss in slayers if you're a mazoko if you're if you're you're a demonic yeah like you are it the only time that you have a demon that actually rebels is when you've got the um the chaos dragon gov and gov is a special case because during one of the later demon dragon wars um he was sealed he was killed and sealed into a human body or basically sealed to a human soul and as that that meant that he was mortal like he'd incarnate as a human with that soul and every time he died and reincarnated that that human would kind of like that human soul would sort of change him a bit more because he was experiencing mortality experiencing humanity and eventually gov rebels against the demons because he rebels against their entire agenda and their agenda is to return the world to their mom they want to give her a big mother's day gift 
into the world. <laughs> and that also kind of means, like, sending everything into the void. Sorry. Um, <laughs> they're really just very sentimental about their mom. They're also kind of like... Yeah, I'll get into that later. But, um... So... <laughs> Gov goes against the entire hierarchy, but he's only able to do that because he becomes something else, and he becomes—he also becomes, you know, part human, um, and that allows him to even be able to think, "Hey, I could—I could not do. Oh, I could do anything I want. I could, yeah, I want to live." <laughs> um, and he all, and that's how he he invites other Mazoku underlings from other Mazoku lords to come over to his side and fight for him. They come over to him because, like, he's basically saying, "Yeah, yeah, you can you can come join over to me." But whenever you do that as a Mazoku, like, it's basically implied that you kind of your essence is usually of made of your boss. Yeah, you become part of them. Yeah, so like you know, your your essence is gonna switch over. You're like you're gonna change. Like a lot of what, what you are is gonna change. Like when when Sakura changed all the cards to Sakura cards, and then you know she had to sleep a lot and eat way more food and stuff like that because they, she had to fuel them all. I'd love to see the magical world version of Slayers, uh, specifically on the Mizoku side. Oh, see, uh, now <laughs> I'm just thinking magical girl Gov. <laughs> Actually, there's a there's a there's an eye catch. Uh, picture of him in a schoolgirl uniform with his hairy hairy legs in uh, Slayer's Try. I'm fully accepting of this as being his henshin outfit. Yes, yes. I, it's like all you need. But yeah, so all you need is gov and a skirt. <laughs> um, I was as a fan, I was very interested in the Mazoku. They were the most interesting characters but I was also very interested in like the spiritual impl implications um, of like you know just generally this hierarchy how they interacted how they worked and i found that it, it applied a lot to the astral and also like you know that this this hierarchy this ranking system was a very orderly way of teaching someone kind of what to expect whenever you're interfacing with spirits whose loyalties are built differently than humans right you know, humans have spirits are you know, not human yeah, humans have a body, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, agency that we have, like, all kinds of choices that we can make. Right. Because our, we're in a different world. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, like, humans ha are spirits. We have bodies. But, like, we're not the only thing that's out there. Not everything is human, and not everything thinks human, and not everything can be human. A lot of things are, are very different. So that makes sense. So, so what you're saying is slayers taught you to look at spirits differently. It taught me to think of spirits as spirits. Like if you're anytime they deal with Mazoku and Slayers, it's made very apparent Mazoku don't think and feel the same way that humans or any other type of being do. Not even like the same as dragons, because dragons also have like physical bodies. They're just like you know eternal dragon forms that can shift into human forms and be cool. Whereas Mazoku, they're they're purely spiritual, um, and and they work like spirits do, and they have a reason you know why they're doing things and. Um, you know, it's. I'm going to talk about this more later on, yeah, but you know the. We'll get to that part. Yeah, the Mizoku and Slayers are based on like Goetia demons from like the Ars Goetia, and right. so, um, you know, it, it meant that I was basically looking. Whenever I learned anything about the Goetia from Slayers, I'd think, well, how is this applied to the Ars Goetia? And this is one case where I thought, like, how does the, the hierarchy stuff apply? Because there's not a lot of details in the Ars Goetia about how hierarchies work. 
They right. basically just imply that, it, oh yeah, it's definitely like some sort of, you know, weird medieval government down there, and they all just do that because, like, and it's kind of weird, like, you know, because I just mm -hmm. gave a reason why Mizoku, you know, listen to their bosses and do they're what made they of do. Them and they can't really do otherwise. It's sort of like, like vampire lore in like modern day. The whole like master vampire and the other vampires are made from him and all that kind of. Shit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a reason why you got to listen to your boss. Whereas like, you know, the the lore that we're given with demons like in the West canon is like oh well, these were like you know angels that rebelled from from heaven and now they're like you know down in the the realms it's like well if these were all rebels why are they listening to lucifer right exactly well and i i've always loved that particular attitude um anyway uh we can go on with that later i suppose yeah so okay, that that, so that finishes up my my stuff on hierarchy exactly okay but so like it gives you something to think about like when i started looking into the ether thing and finally started exploring how, like, all right, I know enough about the arts of power that I can call up magical force and throw it at stuff. Um, let's see if I can make it do what Final Fantasy does. And let's, what does Final Fantasy even do? And is any of it viable? Once I looked at it from an experienced practitioner's position, um, I learned a bunch of really cool stuff. That ether thing is just another way of explaining the metaphysical substance of reality, which I have a bunch of words for as it is. So I just was like, oh, that's another word for it. By the way, for those of you listening, it is not a substitute for the word energy. <laughs> it pre-exists energy. Energy is a resultant outcome from Aether entering into this realm. Metaphysics and physics are not the same thing. Oh my god, I want to punch someone in the junk every time they do that one. But anyways, we move on. Okay, so I started thinking, and of course immediately went into black magic, because seriously, that's where I go with stuff. I mean, I'm a, I'm a jerk. Um, but anyways, uh, so I started looking into black magic, because I'm already pretty damn good with curses and enchantments and things. And I'm like, well, how does this differ from like a normal enchantment when you bewitch someone so that, you know, let your outsides reflect your insides kind of a thing? You know, or wither, you know, wither away and diminish, or, you know, do whatever you want. Nothing you do will ever matter to anyone ever again. These are very common curses, by the way. Um, not very nice curses, but they are common. Not very nice curses. Like, right. it's surprising. A curse wouldn't be nice. You know, I always tell people the difference between a, a blessing and a curse is, did you want it to happen? Like, blessings and curses are both big enchantments. They are virulent, powerful enchantments that slowly take over in someone's life. By the way, those of you who are listening, don't say cursing when you mean hexing or crossing or jinxing or overlooking or ill-wishing or any of that kind of stuff. Those are words that mean something. Find out what those words mean. Twisting someone's luck is not a curse. Dude, your luck can be un uncrossed in like two seconds. Like, there are 400 billion different rituals to do it, including throw some salt over your left shoulder. Um, a little superstition will actually unravel hexes on someone. Cursing someone is very powerful. It affects them on many levels, and eventually the curse that you've laid on them will slowly take over their life. So anytime, and it, it eventually becomes their life, they become the thing. As if you had planted a seed in them and it grew into a tree and now they're the tree. So, be careful. You know, use your words properly. But anyway, so... Um, like, anytime I tell people blessings and curses, blah, 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 I'm pretty good at them. Um, when people ask me, well, like, what's the difference? I just tell them, did you want it to happen or didn't you? 
Final Fantasy see thing, sees things very differently. Their idea of a curse is quite literally something that draws you down to hell. Um, in Final Fantasy, if you guys play the MMO, if you guys play uh, any of the regular games, there's a reticule of targeting. Whenever you select a target, like they glow, or you know, a little air, a little finger points at them, or something to that effect, or you can target from a list or whatever. But in the more modern games, they actually get a little like halo around them when you're targeting them. Final Fantasy actually explains that as aether. You can see when something has ill-intended ether. When something is inimical to you, it glows like an enemy. That's actually a thing. I fucking love that. Um, but curses are meant to draw those things down into the underworld where everything goes when it dies, which is where its spirit and its ether gets recycled to go, get thrown back into the live stream and brought back into the world as, I don't know, a flower or something, or maybe a, 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 ba a new baby or something. But whatever. New baby. Yes. But... Black Magic says everything is a part of the cycle of Aether, and so you can throw curses at literally anything that exists attached to Aether, which means literally anything that has a body. And literally anything that has a, a kind of a coalescement of, of spiritual substance. But anyway, summoning is an interesting concept because you're literally artificially creating a matrix of Aether for something to enter into, animate, and and fuel with certain powers that do not exist in this world. I love summoning in Final Fantasy. I was so angry when I learned how to do evocation, basic evocation, basic what you would call summoning, summoning spirits and stuff, because it wasn't that cool. And when I learned how to do more advanced evocations where you actually make it longer lasting, provided a stronger anchor, afford a, a larger doorway through which power can enter from the outer planes, blah, 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 blah. I sound like I'm describing a D&D handbook or something right now, but anyways. Um, when I learned how to do more advanced evocations um, and then compared it to what summoning is about in Final Fantasy, I, I realized this is literally the same stuff. And so that gave me the ability to use Final Fantasy's summoning practice as a mechanism of better summoning. Um, in Final Fantasy XIV, books are used by um, arcanists and later summoners to summon things. When you open the book, there's this weird array of lines and circles that's supposed to be some sort of like geometric pattern or some sort of like pattern, right? It's supposed to be an array that explains how you're supposed to calculate summoning them, and so you write in the book and then you summon them with your ether. The pattern is actually descriptive of what you're going to get when the thing shows up in abstract form and also how the ritual works. It literally says, first make a circle of summoning, then fill that circle with a particular kind of impulse, then send a call out into the outer planes with an admonishment that says nothing but what I want comes through and an entreaty that says the thing that I absolutely do want should come through, and then bar the space for anything else and and do this through your emotions i was like oh it's like a combining of the the white magic and the black magic that's kind of neat but i would never have known that if i hadn't actually studied some real magic which i would never have done if i hadn't been inspired to do so by studying final fantasy in the first place so my point is when you're doing geekomancy let it inspire you to study real magic 
that the geekomancy comes from, which I will follow up further once we get finished discussing some of these points. So, Tag, you're it. Oh, no, I'm it. Yes. All right. So, I want to talk about a bit the... I, I talked about before the, the motive that Mazoku have for existing and doing what they do. Um, and I've already made it pretty clear. These are the villains and slayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was using the villains and slayers to teach me about how, not just spirits, but specifically how demons work. And whenever I approach demon work, I... Um, very immediately explored the subject of okay so are these evil what do i believe evil is are these you know malevolent against the entire world or just you know against like some of it or against me or whatever like what's the deal here and if i'm using slayers as a model for demon work where do i you know draw the line Mm -hmm. you know where where does slayers stop being the model and real life becomes more important when it when it comes to uh, a few things so um slayers does cast the mizoku as the villains although there are several cases in which the mizoku are not acting completely malevolently towards humans and are actually working you know with the protagonists sometimes that's just for shared interests and sometimes that's because like you know it's (laughs) sometimes they actually make a moral choice (laughs) Mm -hmm. um that does have to do more with like half demons that are kind of like half or a quarter human, but yeah. That can survive um, because they're literally yeah. made out of like evilness. Yeah, because I mean, so I wrote, I wrote a lot of fan fiction for Slayers. Like what? I was actually, no. I was a, oh, I was a well-known, like I was a BNF uh, when it came to fanfic writing. Big name fan writer. Yes, I was a BNF when it came to Slayers Mizoku fandom. So, um... One thing that um, I explored, and a lot of the community explored when it came to Mizoku, was, well, from the Mizoku's point of view, like, they're doing what they think is right. Like, you can consider the Mizoku to basically be religious fanatics. Mm -hmm. Um, They, you know, religiously and, you know, spiritually, whatever, like, to their very core being, um, are connected with the Lord of Nightmares, and they want to bring everything back to her, the source that everything came from. And this is their, they feel this is their purpose of being. And they, you know, anything that gets in the way of that is wrong. And they are right. Like, they are doing this to to achieve this goal. They're, you know, like, so that they're... Their motivations, like, they know that they're causing the destruction of everything, but they're aligned to a higher power that they think is a higher purpose. Um, so, for one, from their perspective, they're not just doing things to be villainous. They're not just doing things to, like, you know, um, be the bad guys. Um, since their source of power, like, they feed on negative emotions. Um, and so that means that a lot of times they'll cause havoc because it's giving them more food and basically, you know, more power to to further their aims um but that also means that basically the only reason why they're being shits in this world is because of biological imperative right well and that makes sense you like you got to examine the motives of the things that are acting inimical like if you if you got a demon problem or if you got a spirit problem where like there's a ghost acting hostile and all you do is just paint it as the bad guy and you're like the the good guy or the the ingenue or whatever in the story um all you're doing is signing up to be in a drama you're not actually fixing 
anything, and that is such a mistake that a lot of young, dumb people do, and a lot of older, dumb people do, too. Seriously, take a, a lesson from Yuko Ichihara, everybody. You are not the star of the story. You are one of many people in the story. And it is not about any of us. It's about everyone. Yeah, and I mean, Slayers, Slayers is a story written to entertain us. Yes. And it's going to have a lot of the features in a story that's made to entertain us, you know, such as, you know, um, the opposition. And defeating the opposition is often, uh, like, a part of the driving force of the story. And so, outside of a piece of fiction where you need a villain to act villainous, and it's really fun when they do, like... Logically, if you have an entity that feeds on, say, negative emotions like rage or mm -hmm. fear or hate or whatever, they don't really need to do anything to eat. Mm -hmm. This all happens regularly in, you the know, world. the world. Those are just things that happen. Like, you know, pain? Like, just live under a dental clinic. <laughs> you don't need to have a diabolical scheme to get pain. It just happens in the world. Like... Outside of any kind of malicious thing whatsoever, it's just like a part of life. You know, exactly. all these other emotions are part of life. So, like, and when it eats the negative emotions, I mean, it's not like you're going to suffer because of it. It just means that what was there, like it was expressed, is gone. Like you were talking, we were having a conversation earlier, which yes. now the podcast can learn a little bit about, mm -hmm. which was you were talking about entities that eat fear, right? Phobophages. Yeah, and it's not like they like go through you know megalomaniacal schemes to make people more afraid in the world. That would imply not just hunger but ambition. Exactly, so you know something to be gained. They just eat what's there, and there's and you know they go to places where people are going to be spooked, like movie theaters. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, that's a thing. If you guys ever are interested in seeing spirits in action, and any of you have the ability to tap into spirit sight, which I assume most of you do. Um, Go to the movie theater and just pay attention. Just watch what's floating above. Just look up like seven feet into the air and watch. Especially if a new spook movie has come out. Like go and observe the currents. It's the funniest thing ever. I had a day with one of my students many, many years ago where I finally convinced her that spirits are kind of pretty much what it says on the tin because they have to be. Um, I showed her how to see spirits and then I took her to the movie theaters and I said, what do you see? And she goes, and she went through, you know, various different blah, 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 drama things. And I said, no, stop making this into a story. Just look and see what you see. And so a movie started and she saw this weird rush of like things. She goes, what are those weird little shadow things? And I was like, let me show you. And so we walked over and she watched them and they were sitting there floating as a cloud over people watching a horror movie. And there was one of those little jump scare moments where like something stupid and innocuous happened, but it scared everybody because it made a loud noise and there was suspenseful music to get you to kind of prime the pump for your adrenaline. She mm. watched that happen and the spirits went boop and kind of jumped everybody to kind of juice them and kind of cause it to come out so they could feed. I was like, see, those are phobophages. Anyway, that's enough of that. But, uh, yeah, I, like, I wanted you to tell that story, though, because it shows, like, if you had Mizoku in real life, yes, they would just be a part of the natural cycle of things happening. They really wouldn't have to, you know, cause a lot to happen. They, they didn't have to, there's no agenda that needs to be served. It's Precisely. simply just, 
food. Um, and, you know, when they eat that fear that's out there, it's like, you know, you've expressed that. It's in the air. Yeah. It's there to be gotten. Well, and you run into a lot of people who talk about this kind of stuff. Like, there are people who freak out about psychic vampires. And I'm like, if we weren't supposed to be able to do this, we wouldn't be able to do this. And there are people who actually do this, and there's probably a reason why. But anyways, we move on from all of that. Yeah. So, basically... <sighs> When it came to Slayer's uh, spirit lessons, specifically about demons, I basically, you know, that gave me a chance to unpack, okay, these are antagonists in a story, but when you come to surreal life, things don't work exactly like that. And whenever, any time that I started interpreting stuff uh, spiritually going on around me in terms of, like, a story with, you know, antagonists and protagonists and all that, is when things got fairly delusional, in my opinion. Exactly, because that's the thing. The stories are meant to provide emotional significance to us, and they're supposed to convey us towards a mystery. That's why they even exist at all. It's not because there because the reality works the way the ingenue believes in fact that's something that all of you should understand if you haven't learned that yet the reason that the character in the tarot who represents the ingenue in a story is the fool heroes are represented by the fool because they're ignorant they don't understand anything they are experiencing everything in a raw, immediate fashion based on their own subjectivity and their own emotions, and they lack the understanding necessary to comprehend even the basic, smallest amount of reality. The rest of the tarot deck is what you're going to experience in reality. The fool is you experiencing it. So, that innocence and that stupidity is what makes an ingenue into an ingenue, a princess in Disney into a princess, uh, a hero into a hero. They're not actual things they represent states of myopia anyway god there's so much to talk about with that particular yeah subject. and like it could be that's its essentially own podcast. yeah that's essentially a framing device if in any kind of pop culture that you're trying to draw magical paradigms from or spiritual paradigms from basically to learn from recognize framing devices recognize yes. when it's a literary device meant to tell a story because the reason why you have a clueless character is because it's more interesting to discover things along the path right exactly and that is actually why i think we are the way we are because i think it's actually crucial to learning certain mysteries we have to be ignorant before we walk in if yeah we... you're not changed by it unless you're like you know, it's new. Exactly. Then it's not a mystery. Then it's, you know, I don't know. It's, it, well, anyway, move on. Okay, so... So, yeah, you're, you're up. Okay, so my last little bit of information to you guys is how to take this further into your practice. I assume whenever, I, whenever people are listening to this podcast who are practitioners and not just kind of curious about it, that if you guys are practitioners, you already have a method by which you're exploring this. I don't ever assume that any of you are my students, because if you were, you'd be paying me. And you're not. So, um, but, so I mostly like to talk about this kind of stuff as kind of an intellectual idea or something that you might want to explore, not as a lesson. So don't ever treat these things as a lesson because you're not getting enough of the story for it to be a lesson. But I will tell you something that this did for me, the study of, of geekomancy. Following it like this, I look at something in Geekomancy, it inspires me, I use that inspiration to go out and research where that story came from and anything that might be similar to it and look for the pattern recognition in reality and in history and in mythology and stuff. And when I find that, I study it and look at it and then I come back after I have kind of finished my study, I go back to the original inspiration and go, okay, how does it compare? And then I see deeper layers of things. This has served me in a great many ways. 
learning this kind of thing, learning this kind of way, allowed me to deepen my understanding of the tarot because I learned playing card symbolism, I learned tarot symbolism, I compared the playing card symbolism again later and then went back to the tarot and learned that I had enriched my understanding of everything through studying French and Spanish cardomancy. This worked as well in Final Fantasy because of a game called Final Fantasy VIII. Final Fantasy VIII has my absolute favorite character in it. My absolute favorite character is Edia Kramer, who is a possessed sorceress. Because she's a sorceress, a sorceress from the future comes back in time by projecting her mind and possesses her and turns her into a bad guy. Uses her to, to pursue a horrible thing. The story of Final Fantasy VIII is all about this sorceress power, the ability for women, and it's always women, to become something different, something other. Magic sort of chooses them. A sorceress, when she dies, has to pass her power to another sorceress before she dies, or she'll become some sort of a monster, basically. She turns into a creature, um, and she can't die. She keeps respawning. So that explains the respawning monsters that you keep running into. Um, they're basically all people, <laughs> which is not fun. Um, but anyways, so your power has to go out of you so that you can die and move on. Um, I was interested in that particular concept, and I went and I looked into some of the naming conventions and some of the myths that they were putting together in this game, and I found there is a name in the convention, or in, in the Final Fantasy VIII uh, game, Hein, and it's meant to describe a god who basically is responsible for magic. Like, literally all the magic in the world is basically him. So it's little pieces of him that is spread out and hidden in the bodies of women so that men won't kill it. Which is... Uh, anyways. I researched Hein and found that it was actually a reference to a Final Fantasy III monster who was actually named after... I, I'm gonna pronounce this wrong. I might. Those of you who are Slavic, please write in and correct me if I say this wrong. Megar Hein. Uh, it means Godfather Death. And Godfather Death is a figure in Slavic folklore, which later became sort of a Grimm's fairy tale, who uh, is literally death. And um, he empowers a young man by becoming his godfather to become a healer. And his healing ability is tied directly to death's appearance at a person's bedside. And he thwarts death once uh, in the story and incurs death's wrath, and death is his godfather, and lives a wonderful life until the very end when he basically gets drawn into the forest and Hein has his revenge. But that drew me to learning more about Slavic folklore, which taught me a few things about witches. Witches were treated the same way as vampires are in our mythology, in that they are said to be immortal. They can't die. You, if you want them dead, what you have to do is you have to decapitate them, stuff their mouth and their eye holes full of herbs, bury them under a crossroad so, they, so their spirit won't know which way they came or which way they're going, and basically stick them there forever, which is one of the reasons why, they, why uh, Slavic people used to believe that crossroads were very dangerous places to dwell, and you would walk through them silently and not stop and converse. You would just go. Um, 
It was also tied to the concept of spirits flying forth from their body, and remember, the big sorceress from the future projected her spirit out of her body into the past to possess Adia Kramer. Um, their spirits fly forth from their body and leave their body lying as if dead to go to Sabbath, which is actually a German thing as well. And so it just sent me on this long current of studying some of the older aspects of witches' folklore. Studies about, like, Baba Yaga and her ability to fly using her snuff box and her mortar and pestle, which is literally using herbs to project her spirit out into the world. Um, it's a euphemism or a metaphor. There are all these different things, uh, just stuff all over the place. And I studied all of this, and I came back to Final Fantasy VIII and saw pieces of it. And from that, I constructed a descent ritual, which mirrored a lot of the old myths about witches and basically tapped into some old lore. And that is the root of the Artemisia book, which I'm writing now, and have actually written a Final Fantasy version of already. It is the bulk of my practice these days, and it's incredibly effective and uh, a little daunting, actually, but it is incredibly fun. And so when I finally publish the book, you guys will get to see it, but I'm having trouble writing it, so you know, I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, but my point is, if it hadn't been for me being interested in Final Fantasy and allowing it to inspire me, I never, ever would have discovered some things that are actually very crucial and necessary in my own practice. And they're based in objective reality. They're based in things that lots of people have practiced throughout the centuries. And a lot of them don't even realize what they are. The spirit flight being associated with witches, the um, inherent ability to, to um, take on someone else's gift if they relinquish it to you, all this kind of stuff. The idea that witches are immortal and keep coming back until someone takes their power away from them or they give their power away. It just there are all these different things. The connection with a god of death. All of this stuff shows up in modern tradcraft, if those of you who are listening have actually studied that. There is a lot of it that, go, that shows up in English and German and Scottish folklore about witches and the various traditional craft methods that are derived thereof. So you guys should do some research with this stuff and remember that when you're studying geekomancy, it's based on something in real life, and it might have something very valuable to teach you. Okay, go, Felix, because I've taken way too much time. I've got a... But you know what? I have already have made the decision that this is going to be a long podcast. Yeah, um, for those of you who listen, don't expect this to ever fit below on, like um, an hour. We're going to go probably hour and a half. We're also a bit low on questions, as far as I can tell, so, you know, it balances out. I did get but, one, so... Yeah, I, I saw one come in, and so... Okay, cool. It's like yes, it, it's the it's the last unicorn. Uh, so um, <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I'll go look at it. I got one that was sent to me privately. So oh, I know, huh? but it's still all right. So, so go ahead. Research um, research is basically what Slayer sent me into a years long spiral of, um, and that's because as I've you know mentioned before, the demons and Slayers are based off of demons in real life. Like, if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life. Um, and I I was introduced to the occult from Slayers. And it's because at least one staffer in Slayers... Actually, no, I'll say two. There are at least two staffers in Slayers that are occultists. One of them is the writer of the novels, Hajime Kanzaka. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he like, obviously talks to his characters as if they are spirits. Mm-hmm. He even has those as a Q&A section um, at the end of each novel. Um, in the anime itself, there is at least one person on staff who is an occultist who is extremely acquainted with occult diagrams and um, diagrams and grimoires, um, and knows what these mean and how to construct new ones based off of them. And I know this because they show it in the series, and I spent a very long time researching these to figure out whether this was made to look cool or whether it actually had a meaning. Um, and so I know at least one staffer there has to has to have the only reason you'd have enough knowledge of how to build this is if you did it okay like there's no other reason why you do this (laughs) (laughs) you don't know this unless like there's certain things you don't know about weed unless you smoke it (laughs) (laughs) well okay then (laughs) it's like you just outed yourself as an occultist because i know you wouldn't know that unless you actually did it (laughs) there you go you know and that actually see i love when i encounter that kind of thing yeah, and so, but I encountered, so I started working with Slayers, like 1999 slash 2000 is around whenever I started looking into the occult stuff from Slayers, and I st- started with, you know, actual intentful witchcraft around like 1996, Okay. so uh, this was very early on in my development, I couldn't find anybody who could actually teach me anything about like the um, Western esoteric tradition, mm-hmm. um, and this is dense shit. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't know until, to find out whether this was legit, I basically had to learn it. And it took me years to learn enough about it to establish whether this was legit. Right. Like, it was you know, Schrodinger's occultism. Um, <laughs> it's like, I, I, you, like, so basically, um, there's a chart in Slayers that often, like, it, it scrolls, down through uh, the Slayer's next intro, which is the second season, and it shows up a lot on screen, and it basically illustrates the hierarchy of the Mizoku. It shows, you know, Lord of Nightmares at the top, it shows the four demon kings underneath her, and the four demon kings are, like, the different demon kings of different worlds. Ruby Eye is one of those. Yeah. Ruby Eye uh, is the king of the the demon king of the Slayer's world, and he's got five Mizoku lords underneath him, and it shows them descended from him. Right. So it basically shows you, and it also shows you that um, Hellmaster Fibrizo mm-hmm. is the Mizoku lord who is the most powerful and kind of ruling over them all. Um, Hellmaster Fibrizo is obviously the ruler of the underworld in Slayers. Like the names are very descriptive. Hellmaster, master of yes. hell. Hellmaster Fibrizo's seal, because each of the demon, each of the Mizoku lords has a seal. Um, I took a long time to figure out what the source of these was because we didn't have Google Image Search in 1999. Right. But eventually, I found them in the Goetia. Um, I found Astaroth's first. Hers is the is the seal for Fibrizo. Um, and each of those had a different seal. And I eventually started. I, I eventually worked with all of these demons um like irl so you know astroth is fibrizo um you know chaos dragon gov who i described before as like you know the the traitor mizoku who ended up being kind of like half human that's the demon bune um then we have um Duh, sorry, there's like two different. Yeah, there's like several different uh, titles depending on which part of the Japanese you're reading, and that's one of the nerdiest things I've ever said. Um, <laughs> Deep Sea Dolphin is Vapar. Deep sea um, dolphin. Vapar is like 
literally a man-eating mermaid. <laughs> a man-eating mermaid named Deep Sea Dolphin. No, like Vapar, like the actual yeah. demon in, in, in real life. Oh, yeah. Is, is like, you know, one of the bad kinds of mermaids. Um, Are they all kind of like that, though? Bad quotations. Yeah, it's like original, you know, OG mermaid. Okay. Um, and uh, Deep Sea Dolphin is obviously the, the ruler of, like, the ocean in Slayers. You don't really find out much about her late, until much later on. Like, uh, she wasn't really, she didn't show up and appear in canon other than her name until after I had actually developed a whole system based on the Goetia. So, right. <laughs> that's how long it took. Um, then we have um, Beast King Zelos. Um, and she's actually called Zealous Metalum, which doesn't really tell you anything. <laughs> she has a lot of armor, though. Um, so she, but she, something. she is the king of the beasts. Um, and um, she is her, her seal is for Epos. Epos in the Goetia is um, she has a form that is several animals put together. Oh, that's interesting. And all of this kind of mirrors like a lot of the stuff that eventually became the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bunei is a three-headed dragon. Chaos Dragon Gov is a three-headed dragon. So, like, they were like, all... It's what it says on the tin. Yeah. yeah. And with Astaroth, like, it's a little bit harder to tell, like, you know, Hellmaster for Brizzo, Astaroth. Astaroth is essentially... for Brizzo. Yeah. Yeah. Astaroth um, is um, Hellmasteroth. <laughs> I can't believe you never made that joke before. I'm so, we, we, I'm so thankful for this day. <laughs> I did not port. I, well, the, whenever I was first working with the the Goetia and first working with the Slayer stuff, I was very respectful because I didn't know what the shit I was doing. Right. I didn't start getting as irreverent as I am now until much later. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out exactly what I could get away with. So, well, there you are. Yeah. So we've got that now. Um, Astroth is a synchronization of not just Astarte, but all of the goddesses that were like Astarte so in Babylonian in times. So yeah, Inanna in specific is where we get the Hellmaster from, because Inanna had a descent into the underworld. Right, and she, well, I mean, if you're being really on, honest about um, who, like, the Hellmaster is in Babylonian and, and, and Sumerian myth, then you're dealing with her sister, Eresh Kigal, who is, because of that story, linked to Inanna. Because Inanna inherited the power of the Death Stare. So. Yeah. And so, you know, it takes a lot of research to, like, get into that particular facet of things. But once you've got that, you see how it, like, makes a lot of sense that, right. you know, it's Hellmaster. Um, and then the other one we have is um, Dinus Grauschera. And that is the best I'm going to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> okay. Uh, like, this that's, is. That's the Slayer's name. Yes, that is the Slayer's name, Dinus Grauschera. Um, yeah. Dinus, of course, refers to being a king. Oh, I um, thought it was like Dinus as in like dinosaur. <laughs> no, Dynast, like dynasty. Okay, dynasty. Oh, great, well. And his kanji uh, for his name, like when it's like, you know, shown in Japanese and then kind of before they use the katakana to spell out the, the fantasy sounding name, uh -huh. um, means like high king. Okay. Like, it's like... It, I understand. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> basically his entire thing is like being royalty. Being um, royalty. And yeah. his seal is That's Elegos's. Unsurprising. And yeah. Elegos um gains the favor of lords and ladies. <laughs> so there you are. Appears as a He's goodly got knight. Favor with the ladies. <laughs> That's right. Um He is actually rather so, charming for those of you who haven't encountered him, but you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, you're going to see a lot about Eligos if you go into any of my blogs. That's so, I learned... Um, First, I learned how much they were not like their characters, and also learned a bit about how much they were like their characters. Um, but that led me to not just research the Goetia and what all these demons were like, and how they were and were not like their anime counterparts. It also taught me that Hajime Kanzaka was working with the Goetia. Yes. I've just described to you, basically, like, five demons made fantasy story, and you'd only know that much about them. Like, you could be a total super demon geek, in Japan, <laughs> right? Uh, like it, it really, especially considering all the other stuff that he writes up, he has an entire system, like several systems of magic and slayers. Um, I, I think that he's like obviously a magician and obviously working with Goetia, and yeah. Obviously. So, um, well, now here's a question: What was he yeah. doing the work with the Goetia for? I mean, he is a successful manga and anime artist. I think you've just described it. Yeah, that's my <laughs> well, thing. specifically, he's a he's a he's a writer. He's a successful. He's not just a successful novel writer. Um, his properties are internationally known. See, so what if that's what he was doing? And like, I always kind of look at that and go, "Now you were interested in you were working the magics. What were you doing?" Well, a very common contract with Goetia, um, like the just boilerplate, is, "Hey." I, as a demon, will do, like, the task that you're asking me to do if you take my seal and cast it in metal so that it will last over a thousand years. Basically, what that means is, immortalize me. Make me popular. 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 <laughs> they want to be popular. <laughs> yes! Just like that. Like, be my Glinda. There you go. So, I can't help it. I just, you know, I'm, I'm music. No, it was going through my head, too, but you were able to actually do, the, like, you were actually able to remember what the notes were. Oh. So, um, what Hajime Kanzaka did was make five demons really well known <laughs> throughout a very large amount of the world, made their, their seals flash on, like, millions of television screens. Yes, thus corrupting the youths of the 90s. Right, yeah, sorry, Fox Kids. Um, <laughs> just keeps going back to that. Oh. But yeah, and, like, got occultists to start working with these demons, because I know it's not just me that started. Sure. I know there's a few other people that have worked with well, these demons to due people. to Slayers. You've spoken to people yeah. who've done that. And, like, I was inspired to work with some of the Slayers' magic. Um, well, okay, so, but, so the basic idea with this is, um, like, the magic that people draw their inspiration from and, and create these structures out of, like, are not just inspiring. They're, like, the, the forces actually have an impact upon the world. I mean, clearly, this, I mean... Oh, look at Final Fantasy, is real popular, too. <laughs> you know, and the, if I didn't know the actual, like, background of Final Fantasy, I would have expected occult tampering. Because I know that the actual background of Final Fantasy was, it's called Final Fantasy because the guy, when he made the first game, was done making games. He was going to go do something else. I thought that they were basically going to like be bankrupt or something. Yeah, the company was being closed. And so this was their last game, and they were done, and that's why they called it Final Fantasy. But it turned into this incredibly successful franchise, and so they did not retire um, like the, the designer, I don't, God, I, there's a funny video online that kind of parodies it and you all should watch it. Um, but I can't remember it, but anyways, uh, I'll probably post it on my, on my blog just so that people can find it. And then you guys will know what I'm talking about, but anyways, they could actually draw out a summoning circle that produces to them the URL or that. 
anyway, uh, so, but like he didn't mean for it to succeed. He was already kind of giving up on the prospects, but then it turned into this incredibly successful franchise. And that just kind of expanded. And so you're like, well, if there was a cultism, it was being practiced by an amateur. So, because that's something that you should all take from, from anything that I have to say about this. I am an entire snob about absolutely everything to do with occultism. If you are going to practice occultism and call yourself some sort of high mucky muck, seriously, be able to do the shit that you advertise. Be able to have results. Nine times out of ten, I always tell my students, 80% success rate when you're beginning. That's what you should focus on. Seriously, be average, guys. If you um, if you're gonna be like offering your services or whatever, be able to offer a ninety percent success rate because seriously, we should be better than that. But anyway, that's better than marketer can actually offer you. Right. Well, we have supernatural abilities. I don't really think they're supernatural, but we have recourse to the occult and the eerie. You know, we should be able to overcome some simple setbacks like I don't know bills. We're super cool. We are kind of cool. Anyway, all right, so. We should move on to the last bit of our podcast. I mean, this has been a long time of stuff, us ranting about our favorite subjects. But uh, yeah, and like, yeah, honestly, I could always do this more. So if anybody wants like a follow-up question, we can always answer that on the next podcast. Yes, and we do as love the prophecy answering, foretold. We love answering questions like that. So seriously. Uh, so it's, we love answering questions that have to do with our previous topics. If we didn't go into a subject far enough, or if you had a question about something, or if you have a criticism or something, please send them to us. As long as you're not an asshole, we will totally answer them for you. Yeah, if you're not asking me how to Google something, or not telling me that you Googled something that you obviously didn't Google. Right, because that then has happened multiple times and is super annoying, and please stop. But we already yeah. talked about that. So that was in another episode. Uh, has that episode come out yet? Uh, not yet, oh, and so what's interesting is I was considering putting this episode out before we put that episode out. So you guys will get to hear it next time. That's funny. Okay, cool. Yeah, because then we can have the Geekomantic trilogy be like all together. I think that's cool. All right, so it's time for our final divination segment, a.k.a. Celtic Crosshairs, where we answer questions from our many, 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 many fans. Uh, so the two of you who are listening, that is you. Uh... First, though, Felix has some info for you, and we totally don't even have to draw cards for it. You can just listen and get it for free. Yeah, you keep on hearing us say, hey, ask some questions, but whenever you keep on saying out loud what your question is in response to me saying that on the podcast, it doesn't seem to work. And that's because I'm not a spirit, I'm a flesh human. <laughs> If you want to ask a question, you must go through the right of going to circleofsaltpodcast.tumblr.com. Not circleofsalt.tumblr.com, because that was already taken by the time we created this podcast. Which is so sad. So circleofsaltpodcast.tumblr.com, and hit that ask button, and you will be able to ask us any question, and we might even answer it. Yes, but we're not genies, so we don't have to. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, the first question, what do we got, Felix? We actually, I don't have a divination question in the inbox. Um, what do you got? Which is a shame because I got these nice shiny cards and I will figure out something else to do with them if we don't have any further divination questions. But this question is, has pop culture always influenced y'all's practice or was it incorporated later on? Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's go ahead and give this person a name because they didn't give us one. Yeah, they're anonymous. Yeah, so we'll say anonymous nerd and anonymous nerd anonymous nerd 
And Anonymous Nerd asks that, and my answer is, pop culture has always influenced literally everything that I love in the world. I am a huge nerd. I am a gigantic geek. I love my fandoms. I am obsessed with them to the point where I draw up intricate magical systems. I make costumes. I make artifacts based on them. I do all sorts of stuff, and I will spend hours of, of sleepless time on uh, eBay looking for replicas of the various artifacts I love so much. By the way, Kefka plushies, anyone? Anyways, so pop culture... Second call for Kefka plushies. Right. Kefka plushies, please come to the information desk. Exactly. Um, pop culture, though. I hate the term pop culture when referring to geekomancy. I, I know it functions, but... I don't do pop culture magic specifically, like as a general practice. I do geekomancy specifically as a, as a, a practice. So geeky subjects, uh, Marvel comics, um, video games, especially the ones from Final Fantasy and, and Square and such like that. Um, those kinds of things inspired my magic. I didn't give a crap about what was on TV after 8 o'clock unless it had magic already in it. And unless it was already kind of one of those nerdy subjects. So, like, I don't do pop culture magic based on celebrities or, you know, uh, sports or any of the stuff that also falls into pop culture. Um, just geekomancy for me. So that's my answer. What about you, Felix? Um, so basically, I did magic before I did pop culture magic. But pop culture is basically what made me really interested and impassioned to pursue magic. Right? Like, you know, I had described earlier how I did all this research into, like, very difficult material. Like, if you're trying to learn about the Kabbalah from scratch in 1999, um, and you don't have anybody in contact who knows anything about it other than someone who took, like, one course in college, and it's very helpful. Thank you, Tiffany. Um... <laughs> Like, learning anything beyond that, though, and how that can possibly connect to the, the subject you're looking into, and then how to, like, work with, like, you know, how does the, the Key of Solomon work, and how does the Ars Goetia work? Like, if you're trying to do that from scratch with nobody around who will actually teach you that, it's freaking hard. Yeah, and I would not have done that if Slayers didn't make me incredibly excited about it. Yeah, see, and I feel very similarly. Like, I have been an occultist since I was a kid, because my mother's mystical, like, my whole family's magic were basically the charmed family without the cool like grimoire in the attic um but like i was very discouraged by magic when i was younger because i could do some of it but it wasn't i wasn't able to do all the things i thought i should be able to do like fly or throw lightning bolts um and the the fandoms that i was in those things inspired me to just try some things out because if you may have noticed in those stories a lot of times when they're doing magic stuff they always come up with kind of a a kitschy way of getting around the rules like they have this thing of oh well this is impossible unless you do it this way and then blah 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 and boom we beat the bad guy i was very fond of cleverness as a solution so that's really why it inspired me how about you yeah like like Slayers obviously made me want to approach these entities, like especially considering how much writing and art I did. Um, it, just like to make something really exciting and interesting that is often very boring and dry. Like try reading a original, like not original, but like a circa nineteen hundreds copy of 
um, a magic grimoire, don't. like you know, early kind of translations. Like really and, don't though, because they're and, they're and, and it looks bad too. Like it's just it's dense. They're, it's not dense in a good way either. Like and I, I these are useful books and and they're valuable, but it's not fun in isn't. like a way that watching an anime with really approachable characters and like lots of whimsy is you know so bringing fun into things like that's how i do things totally like if it's not fun then i have a lot of difficulty doing it and that doesn't mean that i'm not serious about it if it's not fun then you're done yeah if it, yeah, it doesn't mean that like I'm not putting all of my effort into it. It's simply that, like you know, is this engaging for me? Right. If it's not, then how is all of my being going to be put into it? Right. Okay. Well, let's move to the next question. So the next question came to us. Let me check here. Where are you? And this was sent to me privately, and it's taking me forever to open that window. Sorry, guys. Uh, so. This next question is a ridiculous question from Lactose Intolerant B. Puff. I like it. And the question is very simple. Uh, does Satan like ice cream or is he lactose intolerant? All right. I'm going to ask my, my ex tarot deck, ex the, the series by Clamp, the manga series. Another series of occultists disguised as manga artists. That's right. <laughs> you aren't fooling anyone, Clamp. I'm going to ask this about if Satan is lactose intolerant. And I will ask if he likes ice cream, because Satan might like it even if he is lactose intolerant. All right, so we're going to pull one card for lactose intolerant, another card for ice cream. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, well, I'm going to do it different. So Of course you're going to do it different. How does he feel about ice cream? <laughs> And is he lactose intolerant? I would like this person oh. to, to further send in just what prompted this question. Uh, I know what prompted the question. Um, do you? I do. This, uh, this person is someone I am friends with on Tumblr, and we, they, we were just kind of shooting the shit. And so this was just sort of like a casual, like, frivolous question. Oh, okay. I, I'm quite certain there's nothing serious behind it. All right, so what'd you get? Uh, <laughs> all right, so is Satan lactose intolerant? I got the card, The Fool. Okay. Um, this card says it doesn't matter. He's going to eat ice cream anyway. <laughs> He's going to do whatever lactose things exist anyway. And by the way, as someone who is lactose intolerant, you can just like eat like a lactate. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it matters not whether Satan is lactose intolerant. These things are not things that impinge upon his ability to devastate dairy. Okay, so my question was, like I had a, a I answered both sides of the question. So the answer to does how does Satan feel about about ice cream? I got the 7 of spades, so literally Satan likes your ice cream. <laughs> Um, and it kind of paired up with the Seven of Hearts and the Queen of Hearts. And I am reading a playing card deck that is a Final Fantasy VI playing card deck that I just recently got. It's different from the other one that I have that I have dedicated to Kefka. This one is going to end up being dedicated to Kefka too, but it's an, art, an artist's rendition deck and it's really pretty. I like it. Um, but all of the numbers are the same like character. So like all the sevens are sets are in this case. So we have 
seven of spades saying, yeah, he likes your ice cream. And then we have the seven of hearts and the queen of hearts. And the seven of hearts says, otherwise he doesn't really care. Um, but if you like it, then he wants it. And then the four of clubs came up as an answer to, is he lactose intolerant? And the answer is, yes, he is, but he's going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's he's going to eat it anyway. And I, since, like, Satan, because you specifically asked about Satan, is a figure in, in Christian mythology who is designed to be the character who says, you can eat ice cream and not get fat. He's the guy who says... Do whatever you want and don't worry about consequences. That kind of makes sense. I can get behind that. It's interesting because I asked, like, does Satan like ice cream? And I got the Six of Cups. <laughs> and I think this is, like, a cheap six joke for one. Um, <laughs> just putting that, that 666 out there. And, like, I think this is really just, like, six cups of damn ice cream. <laughs> But only damned ice cream. I think it's and, and six of cups. It is a sharing card, and so I think that taps more into like, is do, do people want ice cream? If so, so do I. I see. I kind of feel like Satan was saying. Well, I mean, I kind of feel like my cards were saying that Satan likes stolen ice cream, mm. <laughs> infernal ice cream, evil ice cream, which is funny. So anyway, um, all right. So those are my answers. And do we have any other questions? No, we don't, and I'm like a little bit sad because like I just got this this X deck. Like I think I've already talked about on a podcast before how I wanted this deck and how it wasn't in print anymore. But now there's a Chinese knock. Like it was always a Chinese knockoff, by the way. So this is a knockoff um, of the Chinese knockoff. It's a knockoff of the knockoff. It's like it's very crappy quality in terms of card material, but apparently you can get it for like seven bucks on eBay. Oh, that's good. And it's about worth that much. It's so if you want an X tarot deck, go on eBay and get that. And uh. Your prayers will be answered. I usually, um, I really love Clamp, and if I cared anything about X, then I probably would do this. Yeah, and like X is an interesting uh, property because it does pull in um, one character from a, a different story, Tokyo Babylon. Actually, two characters. Oh, I. Um, that's pretty common yeah. amongst Clamp. I mean, they like to. Do yeah, that. I know Clamp loves crossing over yeah. with its stuff. Um, Which makes me happy but... for when we do like like Geekomancy with their stuff because you can marry so many magic systems. You know, we are continuing down this particular road, and we should probably stop the podcast. Walk down this lonely road. <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, if you when it comes to X, I do want to make a note. Like, <laughs> if you're looking for any of the whimsy of a clamp series, none no, of it's in there. No, avoid <laughs> X like the plague. They stopped doing this series because their readers were so depressed. Mm. Like it was like right after. Um, do you know what else a starts? Big disaster with, in Japan. Do you know what else starts with X? Xanax. Xanax. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know that was a kind of mean joke. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Their mental joke. health was foreordained. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> anyway. I'm just kidding. I actually hated this particular series. When I saw it, I didn't want to watch it because I'm, I'm very cutesy. Like, my anime has to be cutesy. Even if it's fucking Madoka Magica Evil, it needs to be cutesy. So. I way prefer the manga for this because I prefer to just get like straight, straight from the the clamp tap, as it were. Just mainline. Um, but yeah, don't expect it to actually end. Uh, okay, we <laughs> sorry are about we that. are never going to end this podcast. We... No, we're going to end it. Okay, we're going to end it right now. Okay, hey, the circle of salt protect you.